You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, first, I'd like to apologize for last week. I meant to put out an episode, but I had really bad laryngitis. And when you work as a podcaster, obviously, that definitely puts a damper on your ability to produce content. And uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't put out that episode because I sounded like a combination of Miss Piggy and Frank Pentangeli from The Godfather 2. So uh, I guess you guys can thank me for that. I saved your ears from what would have been a very abysmal performance on my part. But tonight I thought it would be fun to do something a little different. I think it would be uh, fun to do a top 10 list of some of the most common myths that surround dart frogs and their care. And I wanted to cover some of the more common rookie mistakes that many beginner keepers make. And I will admit, though, right off the bat, that I myself did make some of the mistakes on this list as well. But I'm a firm believer that mistakes can be made, uh, can make for teachable moments, and mistakes are part of the learning process. And if we accept that fact, we're already on our way to becoming better keepers. As we strive to become better keepers, I think it's also important that we encourage the spread of accurate and current information, and that we discourage the perpetuation of myths and misinformation that seems to be so common with everything today. Many of the myths and misconceptions on this list have perpetuated in one form or another throughout the history of the hobby, and some are even based on truth or what was considered to be truth at the time that the thought process behind it uh, came out. Outdated information is just that, outdated and therefore no longer valid. So we must also acknowledge that the hobby will continue to evolve as long as our understanding of dart frogs evolve. This is where staying current in the hobby is important, a great example, really the, the first example that came up to me was uh, doctors. And if doctors don't keep up with new techniques and medication throughout their careers, they'd still be using primitive, outdated methods. And I don't know about you, but I like having some kind of anesthetic before I get a root canal. And the dentist who doesn't keep up with the times would have been using something a lot more primitive. So uh, I would be much less inclined to get my tooth pulled without anesthetic than I would have. So again, that's just an example of keeping current with the times. So it's therefore very important to keep up to date with things like scientific papers, advances in husbandry, and to follow the example of of good keepers. Bear in mind, though, staying flexible may be difficult, especially for some of the old timers. And I admit, in the past, I have been very close-minded to things like new methods, etc. myself. But I stopped thinking that way, and I started thinking more objectively about what I was doing. I decided that I'd be willing to hear other people out and base my care decisions on evidence and trust the expertise of younger people, even when they had a little bit less time in the hobby than I did, but they had more experience. There's always something to be learned out there, and as long as methods new or old legitimately benefit the care of animals and do good for the hobby, we should all examine those values and the methods, etc., so that we can progress. Dispelling misinformation and myths can be challenging, and there is a lot of it out there. With the rise of social media, there's many self-proclaimed experts out there on any number of topics who, well, to be honest, really shouldn't be giving advice to anyone about anything. And the more popular a person is on social media, the more influential that person becomes. So it's important that people in that position also act responsibly and work towards spreading correct information and not myths or inaccuracies. So I hope that this list will help listeners get a better perspective on dart frogs and the hobby in general, particularly if you're a beginner and you may have heard some things that you're not necessarily 100% sure about. Obviously, I don't pretend to be the end-all be-all, and I encourage you to do some research on your own because obviously everything on this list is basically uh, myths, so things that I have found to be untrue. 
And again, I'd also like to note that before I get into this, I did kind of have another ulterior motive in making a top 10 list because I actually I actually hate top 10 lists and I find a lot of them to be pretty pretty cringeworthy and just out of just some sort of morbid curiosity I thought I would do one myself. So for my non-beginner enthusiasts out there, uh, some of these things might kind of be like repetitive. They might kind of be old hat and I'm sure some of you may have a good laugh at it, but uh, I don't want that to take away from the credibility that I'm trying to develop here with this topic. So if you are a beginner and if you're not even into dart frogs, if you happen to just be listening to the podcast, I hope that this will shed a little bit of light on some of the misconceptions and things that just really aren't true and try to illuminate what actually is true and encourage people to do their own research and find out the truth for themselves. So before I get into the list, though, I did want to do a little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to say thank you to my newest Patreons, Nick and Cody. And I also wanted to give uh, Alex uh, an honorable mention for uh, his patronage. So if you guys are interested in becoming the uh, excuse me, if you're interested in supporting the show, Patreon is a great way to do it. I have two tiers out there. And um, if you do the $5 tier, you get a shout out on an upcoming show. And for the $3 tier, it's a little bit less. But again, both are great ways to help me kind of defer some of the costs of operating the show and uh, just show your support for the content and show me that, um, you know, that uh, you guys are uh, enjoying the show and willing to support it. Another great way to support the show would be to leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcast. The more reviews that we get out there, the more of an audience that I'll be able to reach. And obviously, that's been something that I've been trying to accomplish since the, I started the podcast. So again, if you have a few minutes, a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that's another great way to support the show. And that's something I always appreciate. So top 10 list. Number one, dark frogs are poisonous, right? Okay, this is kind of an obvious one. But when season keepers speak with a person who has only basic or no understanding of dart frogs, this is usually the first question out of that other person's mouth. We froggers generally reply by you know, rolling our eyes a bit and maybe sighing before uh, informing the other person that dart frogs in captivity are actually not poisonous whatsoever. In the wild, there's all, in all likelihood a myriad of reasons why the danger badheads are toxic to varying degrees, but it's widely accepted that diet plays the most substantial role in the development of toxins. It's functionally impossible to duplicate the natural diet of dart frogs in captivity, and as such, dart frogs are not toxic in captivity, assuming they've been out of the wild long enough that they've been able to process out some of those toxins, and definitely not if they're captive bred. Odds are that a natural diet consists of hundreds, if not thousands, of different species of invertebrates, and if we combine this with any of the other variables that could be encountered in the wild, there you go. That's your toxic recipe. Excuse me. That's your recipe for a toxic frog. There is ongoing research into the matter, and I'm looking to get an expert on the show who is a, a specialist in toxicity, excuse me, toxicity in the near future. It should be noted, though, that wild toxicity also varies by species, and only members of the genus Phyllobates deserve the moniker of being the true poison arrow frog. Members of the Phyllobates genus secrete an alkaloid known as betrachotoxin, and it's postulated that they're able to sequester it from consuming a beetle in uh, this particular family, oh, I'm going to try my best to uh, pronounce it. I think it's Meliridae uh, or Meliridae. Okay. But in any event, that's the name of the family. Uh, it should be noted, though, that the genus of beetle within this family that is known to produce the betrachotoxin is not found in the areas where members of the phylogenus live anyway. So we don't quite know exactly where the toxicity is being sequestered from in terms of a prey item, but scientists seem to have some general ideas. 
Regardless, though, it's important that we make a distinction that not all dart frogs are fatally toxic to humans, even when they do have full toxicity. But I always cringe when I'm at a zoo and I hear an interpreter point to something like a Dendrobates tinctorius azureus and declare that this frog has enough poison to kill a thousand people. Well, not that particular species, but one that is somewhat closely related. Obviously, the aforementioned species produces toxins, but not to the point that like a terribilis or a bicolor or anything else in the Phyllobates genus would. On a personal note, though, I don't like it when people use the lethality of certain species within a clade to get people's attention. That is something that bothers me. So when you hear that myth that, oh, all dart frogs are poisonous as a keeper, uh, it may raise your hackles a little bit, especially when mainstream media and stuff like that, they use this hook that this frog is poisonous to kill half the population of a country. So that's unfortunately what the powers of the powers that be have created in terms of public uh, public perception and it can also create a negative impression on the hobby for those who only experience dot frogs in a brief uh, byline that's run in their local news feed or by a source who knows nothing about dart frogs at all so if you do run into somebody who is i don't want to say ignorant as an ignorant is a bad thing but just does not know anything about dart frogs uh try to breach the subject uh as tactfully as possible. I mean, I'm a big proponent of uh, not using the lethality to draw too much attention to the species. I'd rather focus on things like their diversity, their ability to, uh, some of the species' ability to imitate other species, etc. All that stuff that you guys should be well aware of. So to me, the fact that they're poisonous is great, but I think there's a lot better things about them. And that's one of those myths that uh, we do need to acknowledge because it is based in truth, but it's something that uh, maybe we should think about the way we discuss it with other people. Number two, and this is one that I just can't stand, and I'm sure you guys have heard my opinions on it before, but it's okay to mix and match dart frogs. This is an issue that's controversial, but the general consensus among the dart frog keepers in the community is that mixing and matching is a big no-no. Yet, I hear new keepers say these famous words, well, the guy at the pet store said I could mix and match them, so what's wrong with that? Well, he could have also said that it's a good idea to eat paint. But just because someone says something doesn't mean that it's true. And just because you can do something obviously doesn't mean that you should. Also, please note that you should never eat paint. Well, what's the reason behind all this? Okay, why, why do we have this idea that we can't mix and match locales? Well, we shouldn't mix and match different locales and different species for a few reasons. But let's begin with the obvious. Yes, there is an incredible variety of dart frog locales and species in the hobby. These locales are all functions of natural pressures, such as isolation, where a group of individuals develop specific coloration as a result of being genetically cut off from other members of the same species due to factors such as geography, for example. Then we also have what seems like an endless number of mimics, as in the Ranatomea genus, where a population of a species has evolved within a specific locale to mimic a specific locale of another species. Confused yet? Okay, well, there's a lot of species and a lot of locales to keep track of, with more being available every day in the hobby. And in order to preserve the genetic purity and the integrity of these unique locales, it's important that we refrain from creating situations where they can hybridize. A good vendor who has experience working with frogs will in all likelihood advise you not to mix locales of a species. And oftentimes not to mix uh, members of different species as well. It's taken them many, many years to develop a specific bloodline that exists in captivity as close to what could possibly exist in nature as possible. 
Hybrids are undesirable in the fact that they have the power to undo all that work when in the hands of an inexperienced person. This is a part of the hobby that is, I guess, really more the serious part. It's also what makes it a hobby. There are many natural varieties out there, and we should be interested in preserving those rather than diluting them or trying to create things that we or that try to improve on something that's already incredible. Another line that I hear from people when it comes to mixing is that, oh, uh, I saw them kept that way at the zoo. Well, to be honest, I have mixed feelings about the fact that zoos keep mixed species enclosures, and just because it happens in a zoo doesn't necessarily make it right. However, as far as the practice goes in a zoo setting, we should consider a few things. Firstly, many zoos have a budget and resources greater than the average hobbyist, and I'm, I'm talking about large-scale zoos that have this type of budget. This allows for things like regular fecals and vet checks to be done, as well as consistent monitoring by staff of the enclosure, along with extra spaces off exhibit for any problem frogs to go. The average hobbyist may not or probably doesn't have the resources to quarantine many, many frogs, to do regular fecals, and to do all this other thing, all these other things that basically make it a full-time job for one person or a team of people. And most of us may also lack the experience needed to maintain a setup that sophisticated. So remember, larger zoos have biologists, veterinarians, nutritionists, other people on staff who do nothing other than work with animals. And that's not to, dis- that's not to discredit any hobbyist's ability to care for things. And I'm sure there's many hobbyists out there who are either zookeepers themselves or may have a greater understanding than some zookeepers in their area. So in these cases, I can see a setup working as long as these factors are all in play. On the negative side, though, there really is no way to say that these frogs still aren't hybridizing, even if all these factors are at work. So that begs the question, well, what happens to the offspring? I would assume that in a zoo, most would be culled, but you can't always be sure. Another issue to consider, though, in a zoo situation, or really any type of of multi-species or multi-individual situation, is social dynamics. In an enclosure full of dozens and dozens of frogs, which I have seen in certain situations, You can't be on the lookout every moment of the day. More aggressive frogs, especially with species like Tinctorius, will often fight over territory until one of the frogs is either dead from stress or exhaustion. In a massive enclosure at a zoo situation, I could see this as being less of a risk, assuming the tank isn't overcrowded, but remember, dark frogs are visually eye-catching and a good display gets people in the zoo. So how it is executed is going to vary between institutions. A smaller institution with limited funds and inexperienced personnel might not have the resources or the background to be able to create a mixed enclosure and have it be successful. Either way, the hobbyist should understand that a home collection must, in most cases, be managed differently than a collection in a zoo. It's a great goal for a hobbyist to try and replicate the displays and and all the factors that go into creating an exhibit at a good zoo, but remember that not all zoos are created equal, and some zoos and aquariums have some incredible people working with them who have years of experience with dart frogs and all different species of other other, uh, vivarium inhabitants, etc., but some may not, and it's important that we base our impressions not as a function of all zoos, but on a case-by-case basis. Either way, though, I always tell people to give it careful consideration. Remember, the collection that you have at home, you're not going to be able to manage the same way it would be in a larger zoo. Number three, dart frogs come from the tropics, so they need to be kept hot and soaking wet. Well, no. And um, we have a lot of evidence for this, but I mean, let's just start off with uh, the good old internet here. Uh, We have weather apps, and we've been 
having we've had access to weather haps for a long time and there's no reason why we can't look into what the conditions are in pretty much any area of the world at any point in the day in fact weather reports are probably one of the most underrated resources when it comes to developing a care plan for animals in general there's also plenty of field research out there and observation in the wild which gives us a good idea in terms of which wild conditions are happening at any given time during the year for dart frogs I will say, though, that it is unrealistic in any attempt to try and maintain all the variables that we would encounter in nature in terms of weather pattern and variation, but we should have an idea of what the safe zone is based on all the aforementioned factors. Firstly, let's consider heat. Many of the areas within Central and South America have climates that vary dramatically, more so than many of us outside of that region understand. Even in areas of thick rainforest, the temperature can still range from 100 during the day and go down to 40 at night. Uh, for some reason, though, people tend to be biased towards the hot end of that thought process, and this is just not the case. I remember being young myself in the early uh, in the early 90s and late 80s, and the conventional wisdom at the time was that because any, any animal that came from the tropics had to be kept hot, and if it came from a rainforest area, it had to be kept wet. But now we know that that's wrong because we have greater access to certain resources that allow us to figure out what the weather patterns are, what the temperatures are in other parts of the world. Dart frogs don't like it excessively hot, and especially on a regular basis, and it's not something that they will endure for long. Although in the wild, dart frogs have obviously been seen in certain areas where they'll be basking in, uh, I think I had a previous guest on, he said in Costa Rica, he saw uh, Ufago pamilio and a few other species basking, and he did a temperature check, and it was something like 110 degrees. That's great, but the thing is, in a captive situation, that's not something that we want them to endure for very long, because that would, on the whole, be too hot. The idea that they need to keep hot, though, is definitely outdated, obviously, and I will say that I haven't heard anybody really use this line of thinking any longer. It is generally accepted, though, that you want to stay within the safe range, which is between about 70 and 80 degrees during the day. Obviously, that's Fahrenheit. And uh, you want to be able to have a knife drop at night because that does contribute to them having a normal circadian rhythm. Obviously, I'm always a big fan of night drops. And down to the high 60s is perfectly safe. I do that myself. I have... Uh, I usually run anywhere from about 75 to 77 in the vivariums during the day, and it'll go down to maybe about 68, 69 at night. And obviously, some normal fluctuation in temperature and lighting is perfectly normal, uh, as long as it stays within that safe range. As far as humidity goes, we also need to consider that like heat, humidity varies even in places like the rainforest. There's wet and dry seasons in the tropics, and there's no need to keep them soaking wet 24-7, 365 days a year. But as with the heat, we want to stay in the safe zone. We want to keep them successfully in captivity in a way that is not what we think it should be, but what it actually should be. Dog frogs obviously do need high humidity to thrive, but not to the point of it being 100%. Again, it's not about seeking an absolute number. So if you're a beginner and you've heard that dog frogs need X amount of humidity to thrive, uh, you want to stay within the range. You're not necessarily looking for 100% humidity, okay? You want to stay in that range around 75 to 80%, I would say, consistently. Some variation is fine, and if we're going to aim for breeding, we might want to get it up higher to 90%. We should also note that soaking wet substrate is also not the solution to high humidity. And this is one of the biggest myths or myth conceptions out there. It's also another mistake that I made until I spoke with some other keepers who had more experience than I did. In fact, many dart frogs go out of their way to avoid soaking wet substrate. Oftentimes, they'll perch on little islands of dryness like tops of cocoa huts, and they'll literally leapfrog from spot to spot. 
A soaking wet enclosure can cause a whole host of problems, such as foot rot, as we see in Phyllobates, uh, an excess of anaerobic bacteria, which can flat out stink, an excess of unwanted guests, such as forward flies and cyanobacteria that always comes with with the soaking wet substrate, uh, unless you have some microfauna going on. But in new, in new enclosures that are too humid, that's usually the two things that I see pop up first. There's better ways to maintain ambient humidity without soaking the substrate. Remember, regular misting and the simple act of just restricting ventilation can allow the air to retain more moisture without creating a swampy substrate. Remember, we have a drainage layer in most of our vivariums for a reason. That's to drain away excessive moisture from the substrate. So get the idea out of your head that you need to keep your new tinctorious in a swamp. It just doesn't work that way. Feel free to provide a water dish or a wet spot for them to soak in, but give them the option not to be sitting in a puddle constantly. Number four, and this is the one that I hear kind of often from people, dart frogs can't climb. And I can tell you from personal experience and from a host of other sources that dart frogs can and will climb. In fact, the name Dendrobates in ancient Greek means tree climber. I regularly see my tanks and even my phyllobates species making use of every inch of their vivariums. So should we orientate all of our vivariums in a way that prioritizes vertical or horizontal? In most cases, no. But there are some species that may make more use of vertical space than others. Many of the Ufaga and Ranatomea species in particular benefit from extra height. And it's also worth noting that although we're fond of planting bromeliads a few inches above our substrate, it really should be noted that the bromeliads grow much, much higher up towards the canopy. And some of the Ufaga species have been observed very high up in the trees, seeking out potential deposition sites. Expect your dart frogs to make full use of the vivarium and plant it as such. The more room, the better. And if you can provide outwards and upwards, even greater. Creating a hardscape that extends vertically also benefits your frogs by increasing the surface area that they can make use of. Think about it logically. In a 36 by 24 by 36 enclosure with no vertical background hardscape, your frog is basically getting a 3 foot by 2 foot area to make use of. That's the, the, the footprint of conventionally usable space. But by adding a vertically oriented background with an appropriate hardscape, you almost double that surface area. It doesn't need to be complicated though, and I know that there are some impressive builds online that may intimidate some of the new people or people who just aren't comfortable with or, or skilled enough to replicate them, but even just by adding some cork bark or driftwood against the side of a simple tank, that already increases the usable area within a tank. Conversely though, do note that species that are more horizontally oriented, they still need plenty of horizontal space. So obviously don't put a bicolor or a terribilis or most tinctorious in a tall oriented enclosure that obviously you're going to want to prioritize horizontal somewhat more but they will climb i've seen them climb up to the tops of their tanks i've seen all sorts of animals climb that were never supposed to so uh remember that if you build a hardscape that's up high yeah you're going to see your frogs up there number five dart frogs are fragile yes and no in the early days of the hobby, I remember a local dealer offering to sell me dart frogs, and this was around 1996 or so. I declined at the time because they were relatively new to the hobby, and everything that I had heard, which really wasn't a tremendous amount of time because obviously this was really before the internet, it indicated that they were practically impossible to keep alive. The fact of the matter is that many were, if not all of them, were imports, and as we know, the import process is extremely stressful to animals in general but especially so with dart frogs. The store that I worked at in the 90s had no, affili- excuse me, had no affiliation with this particular individual. 
he had his own shop. But at the time, almost all the herbs that came in were usually pretty sick, and many failed to thrive longer than a few days. So right here we have the beginning of the idea that dog frogs are fragile, and rightly so. Nowadays, though, after years of captive breeding, we have generally healthier and more robust frogs that don't have to endure the ordeal of being imported. But despite all this, though, we still have to remember that in the wrong conditions, dart frogs can and indeed will be very fragile. Many new keepers are intimidated by the potential for failure, and I will say that the reputation for being fragile can be a big deterrent for protective, uh, excuse me, for prospective dart frog enthusiasts. To combat this, though, we must assure that reliable care information is available. Dart frogs are actually very easy once we have the right care requirements met. And as I said earlier, staying current in terms of which methods to use should be the best ammunition in your arsenal. It should also be thought of that froglets in particular, uh, yeah, froglets can be very vulnerable. And even experienced keepers such as myself experience losses due to unknown causes. It's reasonable to assume that since dart frogs breed so often that not all the offspring are able to survive into adulthood. This is just sort of the process of natural selection, even though it happens in captivity. But we still can't get by that basic natural selection for the strongest, and it's not uncommon to have a froglet fail to thrive. So if you are new to the game, you should be pretty safe with a sub-adult or an adult if possible. You might want to avoid... Uh, I hate to say this, but if you go to a shop and you see a sickly looking frog, it's probably on its way out. And yeah, it, it is a kind and noble gesture to go in and try and save that little froglet. But I can tell you from personal experience, it's not always an easy thing to do. So if you can get eyes on a frog, that's great. Get an idea of how, how healthy it looks. And assuming that you get a good frog, you really shouldn't have any problems. But um, yeah, that in that idea that they're vulnerable, it still has a, some grains of truth in it. But I can tell you from experience, it's not like it used to be in the old days. Number six, and now that I think about it, I should have made this number five. But this is the five gallon per frog rule. And somewhere along the way, this rule of thumb popped up. And I really have no idea where it came from. If you're planning on keeping members of the same species together, assuming that they're social, it's important that we consider that it's there's no hard, fast rule in terms of how much space is needed to accommodate a group of frogs, or even a, an individual frog for that matter. We need to consider the size of the species, its locale, its social behavior, if any, and at what point in the life cycle it's in and how we want to plan out our build. Plus, I think that this line of thinking puts us in the mindset that we can cram as many frogs as we want into enclosure as long as each frog gets its own five gallons. Instead, we should consider providing as much space as is realistically possible and when appropriate. Starting with species and locale, we should note that some are very large and with, for example, the Matecha locale of Dendrobates tinctorius and with Phyllobates terribilis, these frogs are pretty big and they'll benefit from a more spacious vivarium to make use of. In contrast, uh, let's take the Oyapak locale of Tinctorius. It's, it's almost half the size of other tinks, and one or two may be comfortable in a smaller enclosure. So ergo, I think that we should consider how much space per frog in relative terms. As far as social dynamics go, remember that some species only don't always do well in groups. And even individuals can be, well, jerks. If we compound these tendencies by limiting space based on an arbitrary frog-per-gallon ratio, we may fail to provide adequate space for things like escape, hiding, feeding if two individuals are incompatible, and obviously we don't want competition for resources. 
many species of Ranitomea are a good example of this case. They're small, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they should be kept in a small vivarium. And just as with larger species, the more space we have is, is better. Like I said, we want to avoid competition for resources, bullying by other frogs. So the larger an enclosure that you can create should be what you what you go for. So don't base your ice, your spatial ideas on what might, in my opinion, tend to be an overly generic rule of thumb. Number seven, and this one really isn't something that I hear too often, but since dart frogs aren't poisonous in captivity, it's okay to handle them. Some people feel the need to put their hands on anything and everything, particularly when it comes to animals. People like to have a physical relationship with pets, and although I don't agree with that line of thinking, I can understand the human nature behind it. In reality, though, there is absolutely no good reason whatsoever to handle dart frogs, or any frog for that matter. Look but don't touch. There's a great example out there that I like to use when people ask why I don't handle any of my animals, especially the frogs. I ask them if they handle aquarium fish, and they kind of give me this dumb look, and they say, well, no, I don't. And I say, well, there's your answer. They're a look but don't touch. It's generally accepted that if you do need to handle a frog, it is preferable to use vinyl gloves. That's generally the consensus among other hobbyists and myself. I actually prefer to goad mine into deli cups or film canisters if I need to move them rather than putting my hands on them at all. But uh, I will say, though, if you do manage to come into contact with one by hand, uh, I mean, as long as your hands aren't soaked in bleach or ammonia, a few seconds of contact is not necessarily going to cause your frog to dissolve. So I know a lot of people tend to think if you even lay a finger on them for a second, they're going to just fall apart and disintegrate. No, they're not. I've had frogs hop on my bare hands while I'm doing basic maintenance. I mean, I'm not, I was not trying to pick them up or anything myself, but uh, yeah, they may hop across your hand and they hop across your finger. I, I don't see that as being the end of the world. I wouldn't make a hobby of it, but uh, it is no, It is worth mentioning, obviously, that their skin is sensitive. They can get injured fairly easily. So we do need to be mindful of that and obviously keep our hands to ourselves. Number eight, I don't have a green thumb, therefore I can't keep dart frogs. Uh, I will say that having dart frogs in captivity, you do benefit from having a, a, a green thumb. I mean, they do have a close relationship with plants in terms of husbandry. They help maintain humidity and air quality in a relatively closed system. They also consume some of the nitrogenous waste. They add hiding and breeding places for the members of the, uh, excuse me, the inhabitants of the vivarium. But you don't need to be a master horticulturist to maintain some basic plants. And a less than green thumb is okay if you're willing to learn. Although it's a dirty word in the dart frog world, I will say, especially if you're a beginner, there is nothing wrong with pothos. It'll grow out in any conditions and it accomplishes really all the aforementioned necessities. So it's kind of a means to an end. In fact, pothos is really is a great starter plant that you can introduce while you experiment with other plants in the vivarium. And this was kind of something that I noticed that I had done. I started out a tank with pothos, ficus pamilia, um, nifrolepis uh, cordifolia, which I think is the lemon button fern, and a few other species. And at first, the pothos took off. It took the other two plants about two years to establish, and obviously it's not always in the best interest of the animal to have a, a vivarium that's really bare, and pothos tends to take over pretty quick. Well, while these were growing out, the pothos served as the functional plant, and once the other plants had grown in, guess what I did? I pulled out all the pothos, and I had the plants that I had originally intended to have. So it's not a bad idea. You can use it kind of as a cheat, almost like a cheat code. If you want to build a vivarium out and you kind of want to get some plants established quickly, yeah, pothos is great. 
plant some other stuff in the background and then once the that other those other plants have established yeah just pull all the pothos out and that's basically it so you can kind of start with something that's not necessarily up on your skill level work on your plant game as you come up and then just pull it out and go with whatever you go with whatever you want to work with next myth number nine dart frogs are only for advanced keepers well, before I respond to this myth, we do need to acknowledge that there is some truth in the statement. As I said earlier, the idea that dart frogs are difficult to keep started with good reason. When they entered the hobby, they weren't as tolerant of husband. Well, really, in general, they still they aren't as tolerant of husbandry mistakes the same way other species of amphibian or other herps are in general. But since we have captive lines and generally harder frogs for the development of captive lines, I would add the caveat that beginners, interesting enough, that you avoid wild caught. Because these can be more challenging and better suited for an experienced keeper. I do think that we need to define, though, what constitutes an advanced keeper because that can also be somewhat of an arbitrary term. I think that the main component in defining an advanced keeper is experience. Everyone has to begin somewhere, and at some point we were all beginners. It's experience that makes us good at anything, and really anything that we set out to do. No one's born with magical frog powers. Nobody wakes up in the morning and is the master frog keeper despite... What we, what we all may think when we look in the mirror, but the idea that dart frogs can't be kept by someone who is a quote-unquote beginner is, is generally false. In defining an advanced keeper, though, I think we all also need to consider a few things. Experience is beneficial when you have um, experience with other amphibians. Uh, obviously, experienced keepers have probably worked their way up from uh, certain species that might have been a little bit more forgiving to ones that are a little bit more tricky, especially if it's breeding a proper understanding of dart car, uh, with uh, dart frog care, uh, you can develop that. I think that, I mean, honestly, I think that it's easier to transition to dart frogs after being in the aquarium hobby, but uh, you can transition in from other exotics. There are stepping stones, and it's important that the beginner starts off the journey with the goal of, with the goal of becoming advanced. And I want to make a distinction here between the casual keeper who isn't going to put in the work and really doesn't even belong in the beginner stage. So if you've never had dart frogs before and don't want to be lumped in, uh, don't want to be lumped in with the disposable impulse purchase type of pet people, that's great. You've already made one step forward to not being a beginner anymore. I will say though that doing it on your own it makes the journey a little bit more difficult. And I think that having a mentor helps as well, and having access to current and access, uh, excuse me, current and accurate information on care and husbandry is definitely going to help you. Try and stay objective if you're a beginner. Don't rely on one person or one group. Vary your intake of information with multiple sources and eventually you'll kind of get an idea of what's right and what's wrong. An advanced keeper also acknowledges that what's correct today may not be correct in five years. So for all the old timers, myself included, we can't get too set in our ways. You have to evolve with the hobby and accept the fact that someone doing something differently may know better than you, even if that person isn't necessarily doing it as long as you. I will say though that you know just because you do have experience with other herps, it doesn't necessarily qualify you to know more about anything. And going back a long time ago, I thought that just because I could take care of a king snake, I could just as easily take care of an Ophagopromelio. But I was wrong. So if you are a beginner with dart frogs, remember that although previous experience helps, you're not really going to graduate from one species to another. You know you don't necessarily need to start off with another species to get the basics and then transition to dart frogs. If you want to get into dart frogs and you're a beginner, get into dart frogs. Start there. That's there's really there's no shame in that. 
For number 10, I was kind of torn about what to do here. And I covered a lot of some, well, a lot of crazy myths, misconceptions, and mistakes. But I think for number 10, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of harness my inner educator here. And I'm going to challenge you guys to go out there, find some sort of myth about dart frogs, and look for a way to dispel it. Because it's very, very easy to say that XYZ is wrong, but knowing why it's wrong is really the most important part of it. So go out there, find a myth, find a misconception. Find out why it's wrong. That's the best way about it. And if you can do that, again, you're on your way to becoming a better keeper. So, And I hope you guys enjoyed this list. I know I don't normally do top 10 lists. I think I did one a while back. But um, if you guys appreciated it, I hope you enjoyed it. And again, like I said, take some time. Think about your keeping. Think about what you're doing. Could you change it for the better? Hopefully not for the worse. And go from there. So, all right. Hope you guys enjoyed all this. Catch up with you again soon. 